today on the Root Cause Medicine Podcast. I wouldn't doubt that we could probably make a connection with stress and the glycocalyx and sleep and the glycocalyx, just because it's such a fundamental component, not only to the endothelium, but now we should start thinking, what is the endothelium, what is the glycocalyx of liver cells look like? Because actually there's a lot of capillaries in the liver. All our organ systems have glycocalyx. Anytime there's a lumen that's going back and forth, especially where blood supply is, is there. So what is the consequences of losing the glycocalyx? You're not gonna have a heart attack in your liver, but what's the effect of not having a good interface between liver cells and the blood that's flowing by them or the pancreas or the kidney, the brain? All of a sudden we start thinking, okay, and the endothelial of the glycocalyx is much easier to understand. We can get a grasp of it. Hello, hello. I'm your host for today, Dr. Carrie Jones, and I am so excited to talk with my good friend, colleague, and mentor, Dr. Tom Williams. Dr. Williams earned his PhD in molecular immunology and has been an expert in nutritional supplement industry for, oh my gosh, many, many years. We talked about the insides of your arteries known as the endothelial layer, along with something called the glycocalyx. These have gained a lot of attention since the pandemic. The endothelial layer plays a major role in several aspects of your health, not just with cardiovascular disease, although it's pretty critical there too. He's here to give us the lowdown, including what we can do to improve it. Before we get started though, I wanna to talk to you about something that comes up pretty often on this podcast. And that of course, are supplements. There is a lot of confusion around supplements. And of course, you only wanna take the best quality that uses top tier certified manufacturers, and most importantly, do third party independent testing to make sure what's on the label is in the capsule. That's why I have teamed up with New Ethics Formulation as their chief medical officer. The team already had a strong history in the supplement world and started the company to really focus on bettering your health and supporting your physique or performance goals. I'm excited to help them continue to focus on the endocrine system and hormones as it relates to glucose, thyroid, estrogen, and even your sleep. Right now, you can get 20% off of one order using the code DRJONES20 at newethics.com. That's drjones20 at newethics.com today. Now, let's get on with the show. Oh my goodness, Dr. Tom Williams, welcome to the Root Cause Medicine Podcast. I am beyond honored to have you here with me today. I'm glad to be here. <laughs> Finally. Yes, finally is a good word. Tom is one of my mentors. I've known him for years. He has taught me, I have all of his books. He has taught me an amazing amount of information over the last many years. And so to finally get to interview you about the endothelial glycocalyx, and we'll talk about why that's important, is huge. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here and then ready to dig in. <laughs> For those who don't know you, why don't you give us a little bit of background, introduce yourself so people have an idea of who you are first before I start picking your brain. Sure. As you said, my name's Tom Williams. I actually came through biology, chemistry background, ended up getting a PhD in molecular biology from the Medical College of Wisconsin back in the mid-90s, a little while ago, and immediately was connected with someone in the dietary supplement world. I was hired as a science person 
in orthomolecular products, one of the dietary supplement companies that works with healthcare professionals. Immediately, I got involved in the education arm and the whole world of training clinicians and understanding not only functional medicine, but lifestyle medicine and all the whole gamut of dietary supplement ingredients. And through that process, as you mentioned, uh, I've written a number of textbooks and I just saw that there was this huge need for someone to come back and say, okay, all the things that people are teaching functional medicine clinicians and obviously using that information for patients, what is the evidence and what is the pathophysiology? Can somebody stop and put all this together and put together some what I call roadmaps, because they like, how do you navigate through all this information? What's true? What's not true? So that became my little area of debunking things or making sure things are correct or up to date. In the last several years, I've moved on and sort of become an independent consultant to the industry. And I'm still maintaining all of my materials and trying to upgrade a lot of them and get this information out to clinicians and obviously to hopefully help their patients. And then in cases like this, talking to people about important subjects like endothelium, endothelial health, and the glycocalyx. It's actually always been there, but it's new to us in the sense of understanding how it works. And actually, this is a really good time to talk about the endothelium. I'm going to ask you the question of, first of all, what is it? But with cardiovascular disease being the number one killer of men and women, and then everything we went through with COVID, where heart health, arterial health, capillary health came to the forefront, became a hot topic of conversation in the news with practitioners, with friends and family. They may not have understood the science, the physiology, the anatomy like we do, but we heard it over and over. Clots, inflammation, heart, that was definitely right there at the center of a lot of it. This is a really good topic for people to listen to for those two big reasons. One, COVID and two, because of cardiovascular disease. Let's start with the basics. What is the endothelium? The endothelium, generically, it's the single cell layer that lines all of our arteries, really all our arterial system, whether it's arteries, veins, capillaries, venules, whatever. It's basically a single layer of cells that lines your whole arterial system. Some people use this idea that it's the largest organ system in the body because really it's this connected set of cells that sits between the lumen, or that's where the blood cells are going, the red blood cells, white blood cells, all the nutrients that are in the blood are in the lumen, and they're separated from what's underneath that, which is what we think of the arterial wall, that would be smooth muscle, what we call the intima space. What separates that is this one layer of endothelium or endothelial cells, and it's those cells that really regulate what goes on in the smooth muscle below it, and a lot of what goes on in the lumen, for instance, the stickiness of platelets and things like that can be monitored by some of the metabolism that comes out of these endothelial cells. They become really the gatekeepers, the controllers of arterial compliance, what we call the flexibility or the ability, the plasticity, the constriction of the vessels. You know, whether they relax or whether they constrict, a lot of that's controlled by the endothelial cells. They become very important. And of course, they're the, also the ones where if we start, we have, of course, atherosclerosis or we have these areas where we have growing atheroma or where we get narrowing of the vessels that can eventually burst and give us what we call a heart attack. This all starts by inflammation and infiltration of the endothelium. Endothelial function 
is really at the heart of a lot of cardiovascular disease, a lot of cardiovascular disease risk, but it's probably not a term that a lot of clinicians use with their patients and certainly not a common discussion point for clinicians or patients just because it's a little bit esoteric, but it's really important. Yeah, and for those to get maybe at a, like a visual analogy in your head, if you picture a pipe or a straw, you know, you've got these tubes that run through your body. It's the inner layer. It's the layer between when you suck something up through your straw, I think of that as like just what you said, red blood cells, white blood cells, hormones, your blood, everything's in there and everything it's touching on the wall, that's the endothelial layers. Just as you were saying, if anything goes wrong with that layer, you're going to have problems basically in that system and in the arterial or your venous system. And we see this in cardiometabolic disease, but sadly, we also saw it through the pandemic. Again, clots, heart attack, stroke, things that involve the endothelial layer. Let's start with what can go wrong. If somebody's listening to this going, I've been told I have cardiometabolic disease. It runs in my family. I've got high blood pressure. Can that play a role? I have high cholesterol. I'm on blood thinners. How does that all play into this endothelial health? What happens to it? We think of endothelial function. That's when things are functioning. The opposite would be endothelial dysfunction. And so that's where the endothelial cells are in some ways not performing what they need to perform to prevent whatever the condition. The things that we think of that damage, these are cells. They can be damaged by a number of things. And the things we think of are oxidative damage, things that break down the where you have antioxidant react what we call reactive oxygen species that attack the cells. It turns out high glucose levels also create damage to this tissue. And when we say it creates damage to this tissue, it creates vulnerabilities. If you have these white blood cells, obviously these are helping us stay alive by attacking bacteria or helping us with injuries. But as it turns out, when these endothelial cells get injured, maybe because we're smoking injury or we have too much salt, for instance, maybe you have hypertension and you have too much blood flow going there. You have a little bit of damage in those tissues. Immune cells come along and they say, I'll help you fix this. Unfortunately, the way they sometimes help fix that is by bringing in these white blood cells. They come into that intimate space behind those endothelial cells and they start accumulating things like oxidized LDL particles, which can be drawn into these because they're injured. And eventually that begins growing and we call that a plaque or we call it that becomes this growing cholesterol and there's other things that are collecting at that. And then there's other parts of the immune system that try to wall it off and protect it and make it a, a plaque. Hopefully that won't burst. But what comes along oftentimes is inflammation. We have a lot of inflammatory signals that then create this plaque becomes inflamed. And that's where you actually eventually potentially get a plaque that bursts because of all this inflammation that continues there. And that's where you might get a, an immediate clot that causes heart attack and sometimes death. The endothelium is really there to protect all of those things going on when it's healthy, when it's getting the right signals, when it's giving off the right signals, it's able to reduce the stickiness of those white blood cells so they don't come in and start creating this plaque forming process. It's able to send signals to open up the vein, vasorelaxation, we call that, where the vein relaxes. Many of those signals come through the endothelial cells, either signals from the blood through the cells or actually the endothelium itself can create the signal that drives that relaxation. And inflammation, oxidative damage, high glucose levels, hypertension from other factors, all of these things, even some chemical burden, 
Obviously, bacteria or viral infections like we saw can also burden this as well, create an injury for which the immune cells come in. And unfortunately, as they're trying to clean up what they think is a damage, they can also create their own problem if it continues long enough with these other factors like we have oxidized LDL, like I mentioned, other things as well. A lot of people give a lot of showtime, press time to cholesterol as the only thing. If you have high cholesterol, this is absolutely 100% what's going to really affect heart health, arteries, everything we're talking about. But really, and listening to you, it's much more complicated and multifaceted than that because cholesterol on its own, just floating around doing its thing, isn't the problem. But when you add in injury, inflammation, issues with that endothelial layer, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's almost like a leaky gut situation where those cells become damaged, stuff can get behind it, or they get inflamed, stuff can get behind it, the immune system shows up to do its job, but as you said, it can just unfortunately perpetuate a worse and a better situation, and now it could unfortunately go downhill from there. Cholesterol is a bigger topic than we can cover sure. right here, but the idea of quote-unquote bad cholesterol, good cholesterol, LDL, HDL, all these kind of things, oxidizing the particles, these are all lipid particles that have proteins and cholesterol in them. And I would say that cholesterol becomes a bystander, which maybe takes advantage of a situation. It's usually not the cause of the problem, but in certain individuals, based on how they deal with lipids and how they package their cholesterol and transport it, it can become a bystander that becomes a problem. Certainly. That's why we see it often involved in these plaques. They're cholesterol-rich, but that's not because cholesterol necessarily was the instigator of the whole process. Then what is the glycocalyx? Because this is a newer word. I only have heard about the glycocalyx, even though I know it's been around since I've been born. I have it, but I've only heard about it in probably the last three years, four years. That's gained more popularity. If you've heard of the glycocalyx, or in this case, the endothelial glycocalyx is where we're specifically talking about here, the way that we've done biology for years, you basically can identify things you can see. For a long time, we've been able to put under a microscope, an electron microscope, and be able to stain cells. And you can see the cell membranes and mitochondria and nuclei and all the different things. We've been able to describe these and we've been doing research on them. But as it turns out, until we've been able to look sophisticatedly with the electron microscopy, this layer of carbohydrates, we'll call them for now, and we'll call it the glycocalyx, but these are protein and mostly glucose polymers that basically coat the outside of almost all cells. And it turns out most proteins, and this is again, you've probably talked about on your show a little bit about the microbiome and the genome, and we talk about the, all these ohms. Well, as it turns out, most proteins that are secreted from a cell or uh, proteins that sit on the outside of a cell, and even some proteins inside the cells, have these carbohydrate portions added to them on the outside. It gives them sort of a thing about as a decoration, putting tinsel on a, a Christmas tree. But as it turns out, it's not just decoration, it actually is functional. These proteins that have all these attached, we call it glycation, or this glycosylation, or and all these added components, are intentionally put on these proteins. This is now a new word that you probably even run into is the glycome, meaning looking at proteins, the proteome, which we call it, looking at all these proteins is not maybe enough to understand how they function. You really need to understand not only how they function, but we now know that antibodies, we talk about antibodies all the time, they all have these glycosylation. It's very specific 
carbohydrates added some. And the same antibody that's glycosylated differently has different functions. And this is all like relatively new ideas. As it turns out, cell surfaces like the endothelium have a very complex matrix of proteins that are glycosylated and these long polymers, which are often called glycosaminoglycans. Usually in the literature, they're called GAGs, G-A-G, because of this. And these are things that maybe people are familiar with, hyaluronic acid. You think of that typically in the skin. It actually makes up a lot of skin and other components. Heparin sulfate, glucosamine sulfate, chondroitin sulfate. These are all these glycosaminoglycans. A lot of those, you can hear the word sulfate at the end, and that gives it a specific characteristic, a negative charge that actually changes the surface of the endothelium to give it a negative charge. And what that negative charge does is it actually repels certain things that are negatively charged, and it brings in things that are positively charged, as you normally would see. And these are all attached into a matrix of proteins that are also connected with other polymers like heparin sulfate. This whole matrix, this whole grouping of proteoglycans and glycosaminoglycans are what we call the glycocalyx. And essentially, if you think about it, physically, it might look like a little fuzz sitting on the outside of every cell, but it's like this, I don't know, like a little forest or a little uh, coating that really does manage all of the different signals that come and go from the endothelium. Like you said, it's always been there. We haven't really known that it was there really very much. And in the last maybe 10 or 15 years, we've noticed it. And maybe it's taken the last 10 years, we've recognized how important it is to the management of the function of these endothelial cells. That is huge. It's always interesting to learn about things we have in our body, but now we have the technology where we can see it. 15 years ago, maybe we noticed fuzz, wasn't really sure what that was. 10 years ago, we're like, oh, this is a thing. And in the last couple of years, we're like, wow, it's a really important thing when it comes to cells, all cells. And of course, in this case, the endothelial glycocalyx, because if those polymers, if that matrix becomes disrupted, let's say dysfunctional, then it is going to lead, as we've talked about in the beginning, to weakened endothelial inflammation, risk for cardiometabolic. Is that true? I talked about heparin sulfate and hyaluronic acid. There are enzymes that we have that break those down hyaluronidase, which is an enzyme, fancy name, but it's basically an enzyme that breaks down hyaluronic acid or heparinases or proteinases that in all the end of aces, they all can basically degrade this matrix. What turns these proteins on that are these degradation enzymes are high blood glucose, inflammatory signals, other cytokines that are immune related, reactive oxygen species, all of these things that we know damage the endothelium and start triggering these risk factors for cardiovascular events, do so partly by initially breaking down the glycocalyx so that it creates this vulnerability to the endothelium, which then creates this secondary issue. Something that we haven't talked about yet is the fact that the endothelium senses actually the flow of blood. As the flow of blood comes through, the endothelium knows, hey, there's blood flowing here. And typically, if you have several plaques in your arterial system, in your heart, and you look at where those are located, they're typically not located on a long string as you think of a tube. They're usually at a location where that tube breaks into two places of what we call a bifurcation, where things are turning, or at a joint where it has to turn. 
And that's because instead of the blood flowing quickly, it's like if you're going down a river and if you've ever gone down a river and you see where the river bends or goes into two, usually at that point, there's water circling. It's not flowing easily. And that we call that turbulent or disturbed blood flow. And it's that disturbed blood flow area where now the signals of blood flow to the endothelium change, and now you have a vulnerable area. That's where a lot of the immune cells say, okay, there's some damage here. It's at those areas, typically where those plaques begin to form. And those signals are not only, there's actually very special proteins attached to the cell surface that allow it to feel that blood flow that's going by, but it's also this tendrils of the glycocalyx attached to those proteins that allow that very sensitive way to be able to feel the blood, whether this is a good flow or whether it's this disturbed or turbulent flow. They're involved in so many different aspects of translating what goes on inside the cell, the arterial wall, I should say, and what goes on in the, the lumen or where the blood is flowing. Thankfully, you have written about before, there are nutrients, supplements, products, dietary stuff that can help improve this, which I definitely want to ask you about because I know a common question will be, okay, what can I do? Or this sounds like me, or I've been told this is me. Other than medication, what else can I do? We're definitely going to talk about that. But first, before we get there, I want to ask you about nitric oxide because obviously we've always had it, but I feel like in the last several years, the last three to four years, it has become really quite popular on social media. I'll be honest. (laughs) More and more people are talking about nitric oxide. Can you explain what that is? Why we keep hearing about it, what it does? Nitric oxide is obviously, it's a gas. If I could back up, I'm trying to think of how many years, this was probably in the 70s. We knew about something that triggered relaxation and it was given this name endothelial derived because it was somehow derived from these endothelial cells, endothelial derived relaxing factor. For many years, researchers knew about this and there was a lot of people trying to study what is this substance that is derived from the endothelium that relaxes blood vessels. And it turns out it was discovered it was nitric oxide. Actually, that discovery, along with discovering of how it was made and other things, won a Nobel Prize. It was so important for research of a phenomenon. Now, 20, 30 years later, we're still trying to learn more and more about how to modulate or how to affect nitric oxide. Essentially, what happens is within these cells, there's an enzyme called nitric oxide synthase. It basically is able to produce nitric oxide. It does that by taking arginine. And there's a whole bunch of other factors involved and it produces nitric oxide with that. Nitric oxide is a gas. Nitric oxide basically diffuses out of these cells. Some of it goes down into the smooth muscle cells and some of it goes out into the lumen, out into where the blood cells are. Nitric oxide, when it goes to those issues, it basically binds to signaling. It creates another signaling capacity, which I'm not going to go through all the ins and outs of that. But essentially, it creates secondary messengers, which then creates basal relaxation in those smooth muscle cells. And then it does other things like reduce platelet uh, adhesive, so it reduces the ability to form clots in the blood and also reduces the stickiness of some of these immune cells. And it does a number of other things, but that's what we normally think of it as. Probably the biggest one we think about is that relaxing of the smooth muscle. It's a basal relaxant. There's a number of things that turn on nitric oxide synthase. And one of those is actually the blood flow that goes across 
the cell surface of the endothelium. When it binds, when it flows across and those mechanical receptor proteins feel that change, it automatically goes and turns on nitric oxide synthase and says, hey, we need to relax a little bit because I'm getting too much pressure on the cell surface. Let's relax a little bit to ease up on this. There's a number of other factors that do that as well. That's not the only one, but that's a major one. In fact, if you're not able to do that, if you're not able to relax your blood vessels based on the flow of blood going past it, we call that endothelial dysfunction. If you look in the literature, not being able to produce enough nitric oxide in this manner with blood flow is actually the definition of what endothelial dysfunction is. So we call that ED, endothelial dysfunction, but also erectile dysfunction, which is also known as ED, is actually a nitric oxide phenomenon as well because you're not able to relax tissue to allow blood flow. That's why there are certain drugs that have become very popular that are basically triggering that nitric oxide ability, and that's why they're drugs for ED. It's really an important factor. Nitric oxide is obviously a very important factor in research. In fact, some clinicians may actually do this to some of their patients is something called a flow-mediated dilation test, where you basically put a blood pressure cuff on someone and you block the blood flow to a certain area, certain arteries, and then you measure the width of those arteries using Doppler. And then what you do is then you release, you allow the blood to flow again. And the question is how much dilation, how much relaxation can you get when blood flow comes back? And that is a nitric oxide dependent phenomenon. There might be somebody listening here that's had that done. It's done all the time in research area when we're looking at endothelial function. And we want to know, do we want to improve that? This is one of the classic research ways of knowing if somebody has the ability to produce nitric oxide when blood flows. And if not, then they have endothelial dysfunction, which then can be maybe improved by, let's say, reducing if they've got diabetes, getting their blood sugar controlled, if they've got obesity to reduce obesity, if they've got salt-sensitive hypertension, or if they've got inflammation, whatever it is that might be driving that, it can be improved using both lifestyle remedies, nutrients, diet, whatnot, and even some drugs are being obviously explored for this as well. And that's good to know. I was just going to ask you, the nitric oxide synthase, what suppresses it, decreases it, affects it? But it seems to be all the same things that will affect the endothelial layer in general. One of the things that I've said when people ask me, since we've had this new idea of the glycocalyx, for instance, and they've said, what are the new things that we can do for the glycocalyx? And one of the, my little mantras that I've been saying over for a while is what's good for the mic, what's good for the glycocalyx is good for the endothelium and vice versa. And it's a little bit like if you think of the microbiome, it's probably the last 15 years, maybe 10 years, especially we've been talking about the gut microbiome related to everything. Obviously the gut microbiome has been there forever. And as it turns out, most of the recommendations that we know about food, fiber, water, phytonutrients, all the things that we knew were good for cardiovascular health or gut health turns out to be good for microbiome health. Even though we've learned so much about how the microbiome does that, why you know they can break down fiber into short-chain fatty acids and do all these things and create all these signals that benefit us, but it hasn't really changed that much the, the actual outcome of our dietary recommendations, which we knew were good for people. I would say, similarly, what we know about the glycocalyx, there's a few things that we've learned that we may have not have thought of otherwise because of this understanding of what makes up the glycocalyx that's slightly different than normally what we would recommend for reducing cardiovascular risk or maybe arterial health or endothelial function. 
But for the most part, most of them are the same. Reduce inflammation, reduce glycation, reduce oxidative burden, reduce obesity and other things that cause hypertension. And then the whole gamut of phytonutrients that seem to be good for a whole lot of things in the body. They also seem to be good for the endothelium. And some of the way that they're good for the endothelium seems to be by helping the glycocalyx, which isn't surprising now that we know how interrelated they are. That makes sense. Before I ask you about those phytonutrients, is there a way to test the endothelium or the endothelial glycocalyx? Is there any kind of imaging or blood work where there's a marker it secretes and we can look at that or are we just not there yet? This has been one of the challenges. Obviously, we've known about, we've just discovered the more molecular components of the glycocalyx. Like I mentioned, these proteoglycan, so proteins with carbohydrates attached to them. Some of these have names like syndicin, this word syndicin, glycocin, kind of these probably words that most people haven't really heard of. Remember what I said that when the glycocalyx begins to break down, it happens to be a lot of times by proteases or other enzymes that break down these components. As it turns out, they're in the bloodstream. When they get cleaved off, they start, they float around. You might have a syndicin. Let's, we'll just use that as an example. We might have, if we could measure in the blood syndicin levels, perhaps other places, we'll talk maybe urine or something like that, but maybe we could find out if we could measure glycocin and syndicin levels in the blood, we could say, well, if they're elevated, that means you're turning over or breaking down the glycocalyx. That is being used in research as a potential biomarker for glycocalyx activity, whether it's a turnover or breakdown. But right now, we don't really totally understand, for instance, is that syndicate that you're seeing in the blood, is that really from a vulnerable area of the artery or is it from just some other area that's not even going to be vulnerable? We don't know. Looking in the blood or urine for also heparin, heparin sulfate, chondroid sulfate, hyaluronic acid, and in urine perhaps is going to be a clinical way or maybe a research way to look at this. I'll restate that. Right now, it's being looked at in the research setting as a potential biomarker. Right now, we can't necessarily translate to a clinical setting where somebody goes in, takes a urine test and says, you've got so much hyaluronic acid in urine, that means you're at risk for XYZ. So we're not there yet. One of the other things that's being looked at is actually there's a way to use a probe under the tongue typically. And what it does is it looks at the blood vessels under the tongue. And this is a somewhat non-invasive way to look at this. And essentially what they've discovered is that if you can look at the blood vessel, you can actually see within certain blood vessels where the red blood cells are moving back and forth. And based on the distance that those red blood cells are from the walls of the artery, they're assuming that if they're far from the walls of the artery, that means your glycocalyx is good. It's keeping everything in. And if it's closer to the arterial wall, then that means the glycocalyx is less formed, but might be more damaging, uh, more damaged. And again, that is another, let's say we'll call it a surrogate biomarker that is being explored in clinical research to discover whether this could be a biomarker for understanding not only the risk for glycocalyx damage and other risk, like cardiovascular risk, dependent on that, and then maybe therapies that would improve that if we can improve what we see under the tongue, is that also improving what we see in the cardiovascular area? And again, there's still some gaps in the research that allow us to use this clinically. 
although that doesn't necessarily stop people from using these. Some clinicians may already be using this technology, but it still, I would say, has not been proven in double-blind placebo-controlled studies to be a biomarker. Certainly, it's not an approved biomarker for glycocalyx health or endothelial function or cardiovascular risk yet. We're still in that early stage of trying to measure this as an independent risk component and then being able to then treat it more specifically and then use these biomarkers to show, indeed, I affected this biomarker. I've noticed in some of the sort of more longevity, maybe heart space biohacking clinicians, I see them using hemoglobin A1C, glucose, C-reactive protein for inflammation, oxidized LDL, more common things we can test now and extrapolating if those aren't good, you're inflamed, blood pressure is high, oxidized LDL is high, hemoglobin A1C is high, et cetera, et cetera. You have all those checking the boxes on cardiometabolic. There's a fairly good chance your endothelium, endothelial glycocalyx is likely not doing well also. And I found that interesting just because we don't have something readily available, just that translation of glycation, inflammation, pressure, probably screwing up the inside of your arteries and veins. If we think about the overall role of the glycocalyx as being protective, as being really there to be the gatekeeper of really the endothelial function, if we have endothelial dysfunction, I think it's probably good to assume that the glycocalyx is damaged in some way as it would be hard to imagine that somebody would have endothelial dysfunction and the glycocalyx would be perfect. I think it's a good assumption that, well, on two things. On the one hand, if you have measures of inflammation, glycation, other kinds of things like glycated hemoglobin, then you know that you're putting pressure on endothelial cells and their glycocalyx. So even if you don't have a measure for that, we know from all of the other research that all of these things are going to be creating a vulnerability first for the glycocalyx, then for the endothelium, and then further on down as we progress to atherosclerosis or something else. Even if we don't have a way to measure it, we could say that either if the patient is showing signs of endothelial dysfunction, that their glycocalyx is likely damaged. But if they also have signs of all these other risk factors, then we know that their glycocalyx is under attack. In both cases, the idea is if I'm going to help the patient in this global benefit, I'm going to look at things going on in their gut. I'm going to look at things going on in their stress. I'm going to look at glucose. And then can I do anything for their endothelial cells? Because those are the ones that are at ground zero in some ways of where the damage is going to be inflicted. Can I do something to help them? And if I'm going to do something, should I be thinking about the glycocalyx rather than just generic endothelial cells? So that's the logic that a lot of clinicians are using, which I think is probably a good way to think about it. Let's jump into that as we have the final 10 minutes, 15 minutes of the show. What are some of those nutrients, phytonutrients that you've seen in the literature you've come across that really could be helpful for the glycocalyx? I think if we jump into things like vitamin C, antioxidants, I think the whole realm of antioxidants, I've done a number of different literature searches for different things, looking specifically at things that reduce the activity of those enzymes. Remember, I talked about hyaluronidase or heparinase. Some of these antioxidants have been known to do that, at least in cell culture type studies. I think most of the botanicals that we talk about, plant extracts, things like curcumin, resveratrol, green tea extracts, these things, almost all of them have been shown to have some effect on the endothelium. And only recently has people even been starting to look at the glycocalyx. One of the things that we don't know about is 
are these things functioning by protecting the cells through glycocalyx? One thing that we don't have time to probably get into in detail is something that I mentioned when I talk about the sheer stress of the blood flow and that causing nitric oxide synthase and other what we call anti-atherogenic phenotype of those cells, something that, that creates the cell that can protect itself from atherosclerosis. There are transcription factors that are important there. And one of them you may have mentioned with at some time, NRF2. Of course. I don't know if you've ever mentioned NRF2. Of course. Yes. <laughs> NRF2, which is a transcription factor, is really important at translating the information from those mechanical receptors to nitric oxide synthase. And we know that resveratrol, sulforaphane, curcuminoid, a lot of these botanicals that we know of, they trigger an anti-inflammatory, antioxidant environment in these cells through NRF2. All of those, I think, are really important. And that's why I think people should be looking at a diversity of phytochemicals in their diet and whatnot. But probably the one thing that's unique to the glycocalyx that has been discovered is the fact that these are mostly carbohydrate moieties. They're made out of chondroitin sulfate. They're made of heparin sulfate. They're made of all of these different carbohydrates, hyaluronic acid. Is it turns out people are exploring oral intake of chondroitin sulfate, hyaluronic acid, heparin sulfate, and some of these different carbohydrate moieties that come from seaweed, fucoidin, ramnin. And these are actually being explored in clinical literature now, both in cell culture, animal models, and even in some early human clinical trials to see if oral intake of these compounds can increase the synthesis of the glycocalyx in these tissues and expand and allow for more protection. And so it's not surprising then that a lot of products that you'll see on the market that are designed to help the glycocalyx specifically, not just the endothelium generically, but glycocalyx are often a combination of seaweed type products, maybe even like chondroitin sulfate or heparin sulfate or hyaluronic acid. And a lot of times those are combined with phytonutrients or phytochemicals that are also thought to either reduce the activity of those enzymes that break down the glycocalyx or maybe surrogate from a surrogate standpoint can help the endothelium through NRF2, some of these other signals that we talked about. I think these are the newer areas from the drug world. People are going back and looking at drugs. Do statins do this? Do Does metformin help out? Probably metformin helps out a little bit here just because it helps control blood glucose. Not surprisingly, things like berberine, which I'm a big fan of, always been a big fan of, which not only can help reduce blood glucose, have an effect on that, which it's well known for, but it also has been shown to actually affect the glycocalyx or at least enzymes in the glycocalyx that degrade that and maybe even help trigger glycocalyx formation. We're probably going to be learning little by little because until the last several years, researchers have not even been doing, looking at the glycocalyx. All of these botanicals and even drugs that people have that are out there Somebody needs to do the research. Now they have a model. Now they have some biomarkers. Maybe they can go after. They have cell culture models. They have some agreed upon published in the literature. And they'll say, okay, I'm going to do that same experiment, but now I'm going to try berberine or I'm going to try resveratrol. And I think we're going to find that some of them are work. Some of them may not work out in some of these. That doesn't mean they don't help a patient in other ways. They just might not be specific enough for that model of the glycocalyx experiment. I'm excited to see what happens probably in the next five years as we see more publications coming out looking at this and 
I think we'll probably hone in on some particular lifestyle therapies. Obviously, we could probably say, does exercise help the glycocalyx? I think the answer is going to be yes. Does eating fruits and vegetables and reducing obesity help? So all the things that we know are going to be healthy for us. I wouldn't doubt that we could probably make a connection with stress and the glycocalyx and sleep and the glycocalyx, just because it's such a fundamental component, not only to the endothelium, but now we should start thinking, what is the endothelium? What is the glycocalyx of liver cells look like? Because actually there's a lot of capillaries in the liver. All our organ systems have glycocalyx. Anytime there's a lumen that's going back and forth, especially where blood supply is, is there. So what is the consequences of losing the glycocalyx? You're not going to have a heart attack in your liver, but what's the effect of not having a good interface between liver cells and the blood that's flowing by them or the pancreas or the kidney, the brain? All of a sudden we start thinking, okay, and the endothelial of the glycocalyx is much easier to understand. We can get a grasp of it, but this idea of the glycocalyx being a protector and modulator of cells is now going to just expand our whole idea of understanding of why perhaps all of these things are so important in understanding. I think this is just the beginning, like the microbiome. We thought this is only going to be affecting whether somebody has a bacterial infection or it affects IBD, whatever. But now we realize, no, it affects everything. And I think that's eventually how we're going to view the glycocalyx, that it was something that we virtually knew nothing about. And then we're going to find out it influences everything. This is huge. I live in the world of women's health, hormones, the uterus, ovaries. And so when I teach, I'm constantly reminding the clinicians that I work with, remember, blood flow to that area is critically important. Now, you mentioned the liver, the pancreas, other glands, which are obviously equally as important. But even in the small niche that I'm in, I'm like, remember, <laughs> to get the hormone there, to get that information back and forth, it's blood flow. But as we keep getting down into more and more super cool information that we're learning, the glycocalyx, now that we're understanding this better amongst all of the glands everywhere, all our organs, not just glands. I agree. I'm really excited to see this area of science take off. And I'm even more excited for when they do study, continue to study, especially in human models, many of the phytonutrients and antioxidants that you mentioned that are so useful for other areas of our health as humans, but specifically, how does it impact the glycocalyx? Because I just nerd out on that. I love that. <laughs> That's very, very cool. Like I said, there's going to be no shortage of research in this area. It's certainly something to stay tuned about. And I'm using the example of the microbiome because it is very similar in that 20, even 15 years ago, there are still clinicians that I know who deny, almost deny the whole microbiome influence on human health. They didn't learn it in medical school back in this 80s, then it doesn't exist. But that really is a head in the sand approach. And they really miss out on so much understanding of what's going on. I think that's, we're going to look back at the 20 teens or whatever as this early time of the glycocalyx. And probably by 2030, which isn't that many years away, I think people will be talking about this like they talk about the microbiome. I love it. I hope so. I think this is cool, which is why I had you on today because of the importance of the glycocalyx that I am seeing it more and more in the literature. People like you, putting it out there. And I think it's given the cardiovascular, cardiometabolic rates, disease rates that we have right now, coupled with what happened through the pandemic, 
it's important to talk about. I really appreciate you coming on today. Where can people find you? Where can they learn from you, get these books that we've been talking about, learn more information about your roadmap, shamanographs. You're just a wealth of information and I want them to know. Thank you. Because of my history, most of my writing is directed at healthcare professionals. Sometimes it may be a little more technical than the average person who's not a medically trained is used to, but I've been told that it's very accessible to other people who are very interested in health. If they want to go onto the Point Institute, they can just Google Point Institute or pointinstitute.org and they can purchase the books on there. There's five books, one on cardiometabolic health, which is this topic and has a whole chapter on the endothelium, endothelial health and whatnot. They can go ahead and do that. They'll be able to access my material just by going onto that website, pointinstitute.org. And that's point with an E, correct? It is no E at the end of point. No E. Oh, I was wrong. E-O-I-N-T <laughs> Institute. I, I, I'm from Stevens Point or at least right. Stevens Point area of Wisconsin, central Wisconsin. So we call it the Point Institute. I love it. I love it. Well, thanks again, Dr. Tom, for being on the Root Cause Medicine podcast. I greatly appreciate it as usual. It was a blast. I love it. my goodness. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. I have one quick favor to ask before you go. If you love today's conversation, would you mind leaving us a review on whatever podcast platform you're listening on right now? My whole goal is education. So positive reviews are actually the number one thing that help new people discover the show. You're amazing. I so appreciate it. And I'll catch you on the next episode.